Hi-ho, this is Jordan, and you're listening to Drawing Controversy, the podcast about contentious cartoons and the cartoonists who get their fascinating lives turned into a Hulu TV show. I'll cut to the chase. I got Keith Knight, the cartoonist behind The Nightlife, The K Chronicles, Think, Father O'Flannity's Hot Tub Confessions, and the two-season TV show Woke to be a guest on Drawing Controversy. Keith actually has the distinction of being a cartoonist I had already met out in the real world. Most of my guests are polite people who agree to talk to me after I email them and tell them I'm a fan of their work. I did email Keith to tell him I was a fan of his work, because I really am, but I also reminded him that I met him a few months ago when he came out to my area to give a slideshow presentation. Keith's slideshow promoted the then-upcoming second season of his Hulu show, Woke, but the slideshow also contained lots of his cartoons about living life as a person of color, life in the Bay Area, where I'm also from, microaggressions, and police brutality, as well as famed moments from the Civil Rights era and his Mugshots project, all of which you'll hear us further discuss in this episode. One note, I will include links to the specific cartoons and images Keith and I referenced And I will also provide sources for what we say about the criminal justice system, just in case someone listening goes, nuh-uh. With all that in mind, get ready to learn about Keith's cartooning career, the real-world events of his life that served as inspiration for his cartoons, his foray into the world of television, his outlook on race politics, and if you listen to the very end, you'll learn which cartoonist Keith poked fun at now and then. So, let's draw some controversy, and welcome. The one and only, Keith Knight. Keith Knight, thank you so much for joining me on Drawing Controversy. How are you doing today? I am doing all right. Doing all right. Getting down to business. I usually like just to ask people what got them into cartooning, what were their influences, and what was the comic scene like when you were growing up? Well, I'm an old man. I'm going to be 56 this year. And so for me, I was always a big newspaper cartoonist. I grew up in Boston. And I just remember my family getting the Boston Globe every day. And just, you know, back then you had a decent comics page. So I would love to read the comics on the comics page. But I'd also look through the whole paper because there were comics on the editorial page and there were comics in the sports section there were comics in the classified so it really just made me look through the whole paper it got me really hooked on whenever i get a newspaper i look at every page and i think that's one of the reasons why but i was always into newspaper cartoonists cartoons more than say comic books and stuff like that so you know early on was Doonesbury was a uh, big influence, Peanuts. I dug Mad Magazine, also in Parade. What's his name? In Parade Magazine. He was in the Wall Street, not the Wall The New Yorker? He wasn't in the New Yorker. He was Jules Pfeiffer. Jules Pfeiffer. Yes, who made Pfeiffer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what was the Village Voice? He was in the Village Voice, but uh, he got picked up by Parade Magazine. And I love the fact that he didn't use panels a lot. And um, it was just a very loose style, and that was really cool. And then Warner Brothers cartoons. I just loved Bugs Bunny and, and Daffy Duck and the crazy ones, too, the real crazy ones. And then Parliament Funkadelic albums. I loved the artwork of Parliament Funkadelic albums. They were just so crazy and messy and cool. So all those things mashed together is what created my style. Before I ask you about your career highlights, I want to explain how I got to know you. You mentioned Mad Magazine was one of your influences. What happened is I was collecting, as a kid, Mad Magazines, and I think it was around 2005 when they introduced their feature that showcased different comic artists called The Strip Club that I saw your strip club comic called Father O'Flannity's Hot Tub Confessions. Yes. (laughs) Where a priest basically interviews a larger-than-life celebrity in a hot tub. Yes. So uh, how did you get the job? Uh, You were clearly a mad fan before that. And where did this idea for Father O'Flannity come from? It's really interesting. I'm not totally sure how it came to be, but I was just like, I, I wanted to do some creepy cartoon that was totally on the up and up. Like, yeah, sure, he's a naked priest in a, in a hot tub, but 
like it's totally legit. It's totally on, <laughs> on the level. So, you know, I just remember being pitched or just being contacted by someone at MAD. And they said, yeah, if you could pitch us a few things, that'd be great. And so I pitched Father O'Flannity's Hot Tub Confessions and Bully Baby. And yeah, Hot Tub Confessions, I, I guess they <laughs> they really went for that, which was really funny. And I remember the first time they contacted me because I was in Paris. And I just, you know, getting contacted by Mad Magazine as a cartoonist, it's still like a bucket list thing for me. Sure. Yeah. And so to get that email, I was like, oh, my God, this is great, you know, especially in Paris, right? So th there's just another excuse to celebrate. That was fun. I got to visit the offices and you got to see like the mad fold in and, and how he still did it by everything by hand. And how Jaffe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and just all this really cool stuff. So that was fun. Who was your favorite celebrity to make fun of in your comic? I mean, who stands out to me is maybe Kanye West, or you had Lena Dunham tie into their um, issue making fun of HBO's girls. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, I guess everybody was ripe for it, right? Like, I did I did Trump. I did Kanye. I did Lena Dunham. Bono. Bono. I did Kobe Bryant. I guess that's like the most sentimental one. But just everybody else. Yeah, Kobe deserved it too. There were no like favorite ones, although I don't know. Lena Dunham, <laughs> I don't know. Like, she for some reason she really gets under my skin. Well, you showed her like flashing her bare ass. To oh, really? The yeah. Character, if I remember correctly. Yeah. She, she's a very interesting character. And first, I'm so happy for her success but yeah she's she should have drive me crazy a little bit <laughs> it's funny actually i'll work in one more favorite was it was one i actually had you personally autograph was it might have been the first one i read and it was the one with bert and ernie it was when that moral panic came about like cartoon characters secretly being gay and then the other guy who's like always next to father o'flan and he says something like oh the puppeteers have drowned <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, okay yeah i remember that that's that's funny. Uh, yeah, it was just always fun to work on the jokes and to find, like, you know, I don't usually work with editors, so it was just fun to get the feedback and work on that. And it was sort of a precursor, actually, to, to working in television because you get so many notes and adjustments and different things. So, so that was cool. It was a nice stepping stone. And backing up a little bit, how did you get your cartooning start? And this might be a good time for you to explain the difference to listeners, the differences between the Nightlife, K Chronicles, and Think, which are all comics by you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I got my start, like, officially. I did my, the K Chronicles was the first strip I did. It was autobiographical, and I did it in my high school newspaper. I did it in my college newspaper. And then when I went out to San Francisco... I started doing it in some of the free monthlies out there. And then I think the very first time I got paid for it was, uh, I think, the San Francisco Bay Guardian in 1992, I think they did. I did a strip uh, reviewing a Beastie Boys concert. And it wasn't just about the music. It was like all the weird stuff that was going on. I was in the bathroom at the urinal, and this guy was wanted me to, to unhook the screen in the window so he could climb through it was and he was on the second floor hanging off this pole it was really crazy and then there was this really unknown band that was smoking a lot of weed on stage called cypress hill that no one had heard about wow so like people loved it like it, it was really cool and that's when i knew i was like oh, yeah this, this i could have something here because before that it was the format was like a daily strip it wasn't in that sort of longer format and I really like the idea of telling stories with the longer format. And so, yeah, I just, it just went from there. Got into the SF Weekly on a regular basis, I think on a bi-weekly basis. That was my first regular gig. And then I won some audience favorite award like a couple of months later, and the San Francisco Examiner, one of the dailies, wanted me to do it for them weekly. So, And they were paying more, and I was like, oh, okay. And from there, I started to self-syndicate. So I got it into the paper in Marin. I'm from Marin, so good on you. Uh, okay, yeah, Pacific Sun. Then just from there, I got into a bunch of different places. And yeah, I, I was like, oh, okay, so I don't need to 
be syndicated. I can self-syndicate. And, you know, I wasn't making gobs of money, but I was also living the broke artist lifestyle that you could live in the 90s, you know? So you just buy a burrito and you can survive off of it for two days. And I just went to a lot of art shows and music events and just had a great time for a long time in San Francisco. When did Think come about and what was the unique purpose of that strip? I was approached by a website called Africana.com, a black culture website, and they wanted me to do a strip for them that was exclusive to them. And I just said, cool, okay, I'm going to do something that is not autobiographical. I'm going to do something that's not multi-panel. It's going to be single panel taken from the news. So, so I came up with Think. And I remember the first trip I did, I drew it on a bar napkin before the meeting I had. And it was about Denny's. And it said, Denny's serving blacks since 1997 or something like that. Because uh, Denny's had just gotten caught, like, totally mistreating their black customers. Yeah, such a weird scandal that was. Yeah, yeah. And so that got me the gig for that. And, you know, I just made sure that they had the exclusive right to run it first, but then I could syndicate it after. And that's one thing that I try to urge, you know, people coming, you know, doing this stuff after me is to hold on to your rights. Like, all you have are the rights to your work. And so, like, don't sign away your rights so they can just take it and just do whatever they want with it. You don't have any control of it. And that's something I learned early on. And so by the time syndicates came around i've always been asked to do a daily strip and i would always be like no i'm the band i'm touring nah you know i was i I was always hard to get and then finally i had my first kid in 2008 and you know my wife was like i'm i I don't want to work anymore i just want to raise our kids and i was like all right and uh so i was like okay i gotta i gotta have some steady steady super steady income so i launched a daily strip in the worst year of the newspaper industry 2008 it was so bad (laughs) like just the experience of you know i can't remember how many papers i was in but it was probably the last time that like a normal thing back in the day when syndicates were big were there'd be multiple newspapers. So there'd be like competing newspapers. And it was to a point where newspapers would buy a strip just so the other paper couldn't get the strip. They wouldn't even run it. They would just have the rights to it. And that happened to me with one city. There was one city where the paper bought me and didn't run me because they didn't want the other paper. And then, like, both newspapers went out of business or something like that. So, Oh, terrible. Yeah, it was a big downer. But, you know, for 11 years, I did nine strips a week, and it was, it was rough. <laughs> but uh, I made it work. I made it work. You did. And uh, specifically about your strips... Would you mind sharing who are some of the real-life inspirations behind some of the recurring characters? This includes, like, you sometimes, like, make caricatures of your wife, your father, your other family, and then also portrayed in your strip and in the Hulu show are your friends Gunther and Clovis, who, I'm curious, who are the real Gunther and Clovis? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. You know, the K Chronicles was first, and that was really, that's autobiographical. It's almost like a diary. So it's really mostly me, me, me. And Think never really had specific characters because it was more from the news. But once I launched the nightlife, here's the big difference between, say, an alternative weekly and a daily. A daily to me is like a, a sitcom. It's like a daily sitcom that people want to people want to revisit characters. And so I really felt it was important that the strip not be just about me, me, me in the daily, in the nightlife. So I developed, you know, my wife's character. So Kirsten's based on my wife, Kirsten. And then our kids were in it. Gunther was based on it's based on a number of people, sort of a mashup of a bunch of people. But I just remember working at when I was working at my youth hostel in San Francisco, there was this stoner that would come down to my desk every night and he'd be like, hey, man, do you want to get high? <laughs> do you want to get stoned or whatever? I'd be like, no, nah, man, I, I can't. I can't. So then one day, one evening when I, I had off and I saw him and I was like, hey, man, do you want to get high? He's like, yeah, yeah. So I took him to the St. Francis Hotel 
which is this famous hotel in San Francisco that has these elevators that go 32 flights up. And it's inside at first, but once it hits a certain point, it's outside. So we go in there and we shoot up. And once it ends up being outside, the dude freaked out and like backed up against the wall. And he's like, he's like, what are you doing, man? And I was like, what? What's wrong? And I don't know which one is when you're afraid of heights. Is it agoraphobic? I can't remember which. No, that's when you're afraid of being out in public. I forget which acro, but I forget if that's. Yeah, yeah, acro. One of them, he was afraid of heights. So we're shooting up and we're pressing the button and it's not working. Someone upstairs must have called the elevator. So he's just like freaking out. Totally. <laughs> we go all the way up and then people get on and he's trying to hold it together as we're going down. And we come out of there and I was like, Oh man, I am so sorry. <laughs> and he's like, Why'd you do that, man? Why'd you do that? And I said, Oh, it's a play on words. Like, you know, I said, You want to get high? And like, I meant high in the sky. And he's like, So there's no pot. <laughs> he was a slow, funny person. And so I was just like, Man, this this would be a good character to to sort of um and I think one of the earliest strips was that guy, like I take him to a, a bar, a gay bar, and with really great pinball. He's all excited until he hears it's a gay bar. And then suddenly he's like, oh, man, I feel I can feel it like men staring at my ass. <laughs> just like it's just really, you know, I just it was just so funny to take this character and put it in a bunch of different places. And I realized that throughout my time in college, throughout my time in San Francisco, there was always that that dude there. So it's based on a number of different people. So, I mean, it was so exciting to hear that Blake Anderson was interested in playing the character. Cause, right, that's what I liked. Yeah, once once you heard that he was interested in it, it was just like, really? Like, this is great. We will never get him, but <laughs> this is great. And so once we got him, yeah, it was like a no-brainer. And um, yeah, it's... It, it was really cool. And then Clovis, again, is based on, there's a bunch of different folks that I know, but one of them, his name was actually Kovac. And uh, yeah, it was, it was just another character that was just always in San Francisco and, and a really good guy. But I think the Clovis character from page to screen really underwent the biggest change because Marshall, the co-creator of the show, really instilled his personality into the Clovis character, which is great because Team Murph was not like the ideal pick for Clovis. Clovis was going to be more of a Craig Robinson character, a much bigger person. And then Team Murph came in and just blew everybody away. And it was this tiny, tiny guy with a giant beard. So it was a no-brainer. I mean, my wife was like, that's Clovis right there. So it was really cool. And yeah, so... I generally tend to make fun of people I love. So, you know, my dad and family, just everybody in it, mostly make fun of myself more than anything else. And it's just, it's fun to play with that in a lot of different ways. And so the show was just, I, I would always, I always had in my mind, you know, I, I've always wanted to be on um, the uh, Henry Louis Gates show on PBS, Find Your Roots. Oh, Finding Your Roots, yeah. Yeah, Finding Your Roots. And I was like, what would happen if it went terribly, terribly wrong? And so, right, that's parody. Yes, yes. Show. So those type of things, it was just really fun to be able to do that stuff. And actually, so that's a good segue just to explain, how does one get a TV show based on them? You had two seasons of, it was called Woke, it's on Hulu. I'm very sorry it didn't get picked up for season three, but I really enjoyed everything that got put out. Yeah, yeah, it was, you know, listen, it was a great run, cult status for us. Really, it was, you know, that bad year of newspaper stuff. I just said to my wife, like, I think it's time to move down to L.A. and try to get a show because I don't think my industry is going to be around for much longer. So that was the intention. We moved down there and I stubbornly did not have a car for the first three years. And it wasn't until I inherited a car and drove it out from Boston where I was like, oh, okay, you have to go around to all these places and meet all these people. And so that's when it really started to happen. I met a producer that was didn't have a lot of experience, but just his enthusiasm, and he was not a jerk. 
So I just hitched my wagon to this guy and he introduced me to other folks and it just really went from there. And it was, you know, they really just loved the stories I told. That's really it is your ability to tell a story in a different way. I think they did just saw that my sense of humor was a bit different. And so I would tell a story and it would be like this weird twist at the end of it or just like something that they never saw coming that was the really cool thing and it helped obviously to have visuals you know be able to show them these comics and everything even though it's just funny that i pitched it as a live action thing but one of my mentors tom gamble who is a cartoonist but also basically the forrest gump of television comedy tom gamble's written for the simpsons and saturday night live and really and seinfeld and he just told me, and obviously this is before the pandemic and before everyone started doing animation. He just said, listen, you should pitch this as a live action thing because you'll have the opportunity to pitch it to 40 different places as opposed to like six. Instead of six different places. Yeah. Now, so many people do so many places do animation now that, you know, that's probably the next thing I'm going to pitch is animation because a lot of people are like, well, you're a cartoonist, so why don't you pitch an animated show? So that's the next thing I'm working on. So We mentioned Blake Anderson and Teamer playing your friends, but we didn't even talk about Lamorne Morris, who did a great job playing the fictional version of you. Yeah, it was pretty interesting because we had so many different actors come through to audition before Lamorne. And so it was like a who's who that you're like, oh man, that guy's that guy's from Atlanta. Oh man, that guy's from Empire. It was really cool to see all these folks come through. But, you know, it was another, once you heard Lamorne was interested in it, you're like, oh wow, that's really cool. Lamorne's interested in it. We'll never get him. That's <laughs> just another. Uh, but it was really neat. He was really interested in it like once he read the script he said this is me like this is me in a different sort of job you know he he felt like he was me but in acting as opposed to cartooning and so it was just a no-brainer once we saw him we did this really neat i wrote a sequence where he has a conversation with a jar of mayonnaise in a grocery store <laughs> And the mayonnaise is saying how all these other condiments from all these other countries are taking my job. I used to be the, at the top of the condiment aisle. <laughs> and then the grocery person confronts him while he's on the floor <laughs> talking to the mayonnaise. And it was just, he just uh, did a great job with it. And sort of this vulnerability that he has that is really cool and it's what we were looking for. So, yeah, it was great. It was a great experience. And, you know, seeing how everything comes together because it is really just like as a cartoonist you work by yourself and there's not a whole lot to it you just you do what you do but there's a, a bit of letting go and having all these folks work on this stuff you know you're just hoping that things work out and you know the key is to have surround yourself with intelligent talented people <laughs> There's always a few screw-ups. <laughs> you just hope that talent outweighs the screw-ups. And we definitely had that. I think I remember you saying that, referring to an early scene that happens in season one, is you always wanted to do something that parodied the famous scene from Do the Right Thing, where like Spike Lee, he throws the trash can through the window and it symbolizes them destroying yes. gentrification and like kind of the whiteness invading their culture. And explain what happens in your version. Yeah, yeah. And I pitched that in the room. I said, listen, all I want to do is do a, a parody scene of Do the Right Thing where my character picks up a barrel and is ready to throw it through the window and it just bounces out the window. It doesn't break. And um, yeah, so that's that's it. My character goes into a barbershop that day before is, is his old school barbershop with the old black barber and then it gets gentrified and there's these white hipsters in there and it's just like, what just happened? And it triggers this trash can, you know, talking to him, going, they're destroying the neighborhood, man. They're like, just like, you know, and it's just like, you, I can't do it, but you can pick me up, you know, just throw me through the window. And you got Public Enemy to play too. That was the best yeah, part. Yeah, it wasn't, it, the, the song it was the not cheap. Let's just say <laughs> it was not cheap. <laughs> it's, it's funny as a producer. And, and my management said this to me. They said, 
pay attention to everything. Like you are a producer and you will learn so much on this thing. I participated in every aspect of it from picking auditioning actors to it auditioning extras and writing scripts and choosing costumes and choosing the locations and just music and you just it's really interesting to find out like how much you know public enemy costs as opposed to how much my band costs <laughs> you know and that's one of the reasons why my band got into a couple of spots is because we're a lot less expensive and uh, we had to stay on budget and also just like extras if they speak more than like 12 words that lines of dialogue like 12 words then you have to pay them a certain like amount more and everything it's it's crazy it's really interesting stuff right and just yeah, it was it was a really stressful. It's harrowing, but it's also, you know, Hollywood problems. And that's what I always said. I said, "Listen, I would say this every day. We're not curing cancer here. We're just making television. So don't stress out that much, you know." It's funny. I want to talk about one issue addressed in your show Woke, but also through your cartoons, and I can't help but feel this is reflective or based off something that may have actually happened to you you made a comic where a white newspaper editor says to your cartoon counterpart like hey i'd love to run your strip but even though i love your work i can't run it because there are no black people in my town or in woke fictional keith kind of has to go like it's not a compliment when people fans come up to him and go like oh i love your work i didn't know you were black and i guess maybe i wanted to give you the space to talk about like what is your attitude towards comments like that and really just the fact that you grew up loving newspaper cartoons but unfortunately there isn't much diversity as far as who's behind each newspaper comic yeah yeah it's it was super important for me to sort of include all these microaggressions especially from supposedly well-intentioned people i mean it's easy it's really easy and obvious to like i don't know depict racist people but it's folks who don't think they think they're better than other people is who I really wanted to get because people just say things that they think are compliments and they're not at all. <laughs> and it's just like, that's what I thought was important to get at. And yeah, yeah, like that was, that was a true story. Like, and, you know, having this editor saying like, I, I love your strip, but I'd never run it. Like, so am I supposed to be happy about that? Like, what is... What is the point of that? And so just really, I mean, that was it. That, that like, those are the type of things that are important for me to point out because hopefully people, some people will see that and, and see themselves in it and be like, oh, I've done that before. <laughs> like, maybe I should stop. Actually, my next strip is going to be about this. You know, when white people always say, oh, you know, and listen, I'm not racist. Like, my sisters married to a black man or like you know i sat next to a black person and blah blah blah. it's just like i always say okay have you ever heard anyone say I, you know i'm not sexist like i'm married to a woman or like i have a sister like no one would ever say that i should use that next time <laughs> yeah you would never no one would ever do that so so stop saying that <laughs> stop saying that it's just such a silly thing so that's that's my next strip like because i just it just drives me crazy when people say that type of stuff so microaggressions like that's what i love to write about like do stuff about microaggressions you know i didn't know what they were called 20 years ago but that's what they are i feel like another kind of just small joke you made in woke is people also got to stop assuming that you're best friends with Aaron Magruder because that's the only like other black cartoonist they can name off the top of their head. It's so funny. I snuck into a, a National Cartoonist Society convention event in San Francisco, and like that was the first dude runs up to me. He's like, Aaron Magruder, huge fan of your work. <laughs> Just like, oh no. Wow, this is exactly the way I pictured it. <laughs> I, I like a quote of yours because I, I kind of think about like, do you feel pressure to just like, oh, make neutral strips or like kind of get editors more on board with 
strips that aren't as controversial, yet you say a comic strip can be about more than a cat eating lasagna or how stupid your boss is. Some of the best comic strips point out truths, not only through humor, but through satire. And I kind of wonder what your history has been through that. Well, I mean, to me, that I mean, that's what it is. It's like, I love satire. And we learned satire through so many different things, but I learned so much through Warner Brothers cartoons. And, you know, you laugh at them when you're a little kid, but then as you get older, you start to understand, oh, they're referencing the war here. Oh, they're referencing Hollywood here. Oh, they're referencing this, that, you know? And you start to learn all this different stuff. And Warner Brothers cartoon probably introduced more people to opera than any other thing you know kill the wabbit yeah yeah so there's so much that that was important for me is i want people to read my stuff and and you know get the surface stuff but also if they take a look at it again maybe they'll figure out like oh wow he's referencing this or he's referencing that and you know I didn't think I had that great of an education, but when I was in San Francisco with these two roommates, I had, this might be a very Gunther thing to say, but one of my roommates came up to me and they said, hey, like, I just saw the weirdest thing, which is there was this movie that was set in old days, but it was like based on Steve Martin's movie where he, he has a big nose. And he's a poet, like it was, I think it was called Roxanne or something like that. And I was like, do you mean Cyrano de Bergerac? Right. It was like based on this Steve Martin. And, and I was like, are you serious? So I went to my other roommate and I said, <laughs> I said, hey, he thinks that Cyrano de Bergerac is based on the Steve Martin Roxanne movie. And they're like, they remade like the Roxanne movie. <laughs> like they had never heard of Cyrano de Bergerac. And that's when I was like, wait a second, maybe I did get a decent education. Or maybe I just like, maybe cartoons have taught me that. I, I don't know what happened, but I just realized like, oh, okay. Like I'm more informed than I thought I was. <laughs> but I, I think that has a lot to do with how many cartoons I read and how much satire I read. Like through Mad and through all and all the different stuff that I love, I love to read. So I, I think, I think people who read cartoons are generally highly intelligent folk. Uh, not to smo not to smooth your audience or anything, but I think so. I think this is a good opportunity. I wanted to work in an anecdote where I learned something really important from you back a few months ago when we had met. This was in reference to your slideshow, which we'll get into more detail in just a bit. But one of these famous civil rights history photos that you work in your slideshow, it shows Elizabeth Eckford, who, along with eight other students, they comprised what was known as the Little Rock Nine in 1957 in Arkansas. They desegregated Arkansas's Little Rock Central High School. And in this famed photo, Elizabeth Eckford, she's walking up with shades on, and you see behind white people jeering, because as we all know, historically, there was so much backlash, violence against this integration. And what stands out is you see this white woman with her mouth wide open, like frozen in motion. And according to witnesses there, like she said, some of the worst slurs at this woman. And that woman's name is Hazel Mazury. And I mentioned to you after the slideshow that years later, Unlike other people you can see in that photo who are either, they were either never identified or like people knew who they were and they're just not sorry for anything. I had just kind of casually said like, oh yeah, you know, Hazel, she actually reached out to Elizabeth to apologize for what she said. And in this piece I'll link to from Vanity Fair, there's this whole story about how they forgave each other. They posed together again for a reenactment photo in 1997 in front of that same school. They considered each other friends for a time. But I find out later, like after this conversation with you, like, I was only half correct when saying this. Like, Elizabeth and Hazel, they entertained a friendly relationship decades after the fact, but many people, including those at the NAACP, Oprah Winfrey, who was part of the reason they had reunited in the first place, and other white people are like, this ain't right. This isn't real. This is disingenuous. And for vague reasons noted in the article, Elizabeth Eckford just decided to call Hazel. She's like, you know what, this woman, she's this white woman, she's a born-again bigot, she's an opportunist, even though she did concede, yeah, there's some good that came out of this reconciliation, but we're not friends. And the point of all that is 
I kind of was alluding to this when I, I brought this up to you, like, hey, did you know that these two women, they kind of reconciled after the fact? And you kind of treated me like I had just said to you, hey, did you think Green Book was the greatest, <laughs> most heartwarming movie about race relations ever made? Because if I remember correctly, you started to explain to me that for you personally, the definition of white supremacy is being a person of color and only getting to enjoy any of life's pleasures and luxuries if white people approve of you. And in an NPR piece um, on your show, Woke, your co-creator kind of says that he kind of put in the Clovis character, Clovis telling Keith, like, dude, just make cool cartoons like that aren't too controversial because you're only going to get rich if like white people are like comfortable. <laughs> and I just want to give you the chance to expand and explain. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting because I, I honestly believe, I mean, and, and you know, this isn't going to change anytime soon. Like, as long as we are in this white-dominated society, like, there's going to be these stories, supposedly, of these reconciliations. And, like, I just saw this article just the other day about these two parents whose son was murdered by a white supremacist. And they're saying, oh, you know, they took something negative and made it into a positive. You know, they're, they're doing scholarships for black military students and stuff like that. But it's just like... White people want to create something good to come out of all this all the time, like some sort of thing to make them feel better. And it's BS. And I hope I get the opportunity to create something like this. But like, you know, the third season we had we were hoping for was going to put Keith on trial for inciting a racist war and they were going to railroad him. And he was going to end up getting off and they were going to be hoping for some sort of feel good reconciliation and this opportunity to say something. And I just wanted him to just say black people should sue for everything, <laughs> like sue everybody all the time. Just sue, 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 <laughs> because it's all horrible. Everything is horrible. <laughs> But um, obviously, we're, we didn't get that. But yeah, like, there's too much, like, I don't mean to sound cynical, but, like, the idea of that we can somehow just apologize 50 years. And that that's generally what white society does, is they apologize to people for the stuff they do 50 years down the line, right? So so everything that's happening now, there's going to be apologies, you know, for Breonna Taylor. It's going to happen 50 years down the line, you know? John Lewis, everyone fights John Lewis like crazy. And then when he dies, suddenly he's like, oh, you know, like even his enemies. Yeah, even Mitch McConnell has a Wikipedia-level obituary. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, we have parents, we have white people trying to prevent any of this stuff from being taught in school. It's not even being taught in school, but like they're going out of their way to make sure that it's never taught in school because it makes, we don't want our white students to feel awkward. Like, do you know how awkward it is to have nothing to read that has someone that looks like you as the hero? Like there's more protagonists that are animals and books than people of color you know that type of thing like and to like deal with mark twain and like tossing the n-word around all over the place and there's no context nobody's allowed to talk about like why all this is and just we live that existence every day like to the point where and I explain this all the time. I don't know if I said it during my talk, but every once in a while, there'll be someone posting like after the Brady Bunch had their series, when they got a little older, they had like the Brady Bunch variety hour. Right. One of the worst spinoffs, I think, in TV history. Yeah. And they were all singing. There's footage of them singing an Earth, Wind and Fire song. And of course, you know, it's terrible. It's horrible. And it's just like, to me, that is traumatizing. Like instead of just why not have Earth, Wind, and Fire on there? Like, sure, yeah. Perform it, and it's really cool. <laughs> Instead, let's have the Brady Bunch. None of them can sing, and we'll just have them butcher a great song. And when that stuff gets posted, that to me is traumatizing. Like, that, like, black people deserve reparations just for that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I like your stance. It truly is like 
horrible things like that. I don't know. Don't like to sound cynical, but like I but I just don't think people get just how pervasive like and, and, and if we complain, it's like, what are you complaining for? Like especially, you know, I know people who's like, Keith, your success, like what are you complaining about? Like we should shut up because we're success you know, a person is successful. So you shouldn't talk about all the bad stuff that's yeah, going on. You hold yourself up by the Yeah, roots. yeah. You give me a break. Like I know I'm probably the world's luckiest person. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. Well, I'm sorry you didn't get to go that far in a season three of your show, but I do know at the end of season one, and I did take interest in this when I first saw it, uh, the finale is Keith having to awkwardly have a beer summit with the cop who assaults him at the start of the show. And it obviously was supposed to parody the real life incident, Henry Louis Gates being attacked by or arrested by a Cambridge police officer and Obama intervening to say like, hey, let's all be civil and come to the White House and have a few beers. And what comes to mind with everything you just said is, well, you decided to make it that Keith's like, well, no, you're not really sorry, and I feel like you'd do it again. And him unapologetically, what does he do? He flicks beer peanuts at his face? or Yeah, beer in his face, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, that the performative stuff, that's the thing that just drives me crazy, you know? Here's the thing, like, I've had police come up to me and just quietly say, like, the work that you do is really good, you know? And... I had this one police chief saying, I would love to talk with you and it not be in public, you know, it was really respectful. It's not, wasn't a press opportunity, you know, like, look, look, see, look at me. And there are people doing real work like that out there all over the place. And they're not looking for publicity and they're not looking for approval. They're just doing that type of work. And so I praise all the people who are quietly working towards that stuff and the folks who are doing it loudly too. But um, I think it takes everyone from calling somebody out at the dinner table to people on the front line protesting out on the street, you know, and to the people in education, just like circumventing all these silly supposed laws that are being passed to prevent you from teaching things, you know, we need to all be a part of it. And at every level. So now I think this is a good time to talk about the content of your cartoons that kind of address those issues head on. I noticed there seems to be a type of reaction you've gotten in the past, and maybe you still do, where, say, for example, Slippery Rock University students in Pennsylvania, they protest against one of your K-Chronicle strips where you drew yourself hanging from a tree with a noose around your neck. And when you ask the surrounding white people, is this because I'm black? They go, see, there you go again, pulling out the race card. Similarly, in 2008, Montclair State University issued an apology on your behalf for depicting an incident where an Obama canvasser knocks on a door and the white person at the door says they're voting for, uses a racial slur to refer to Obama. And you also, I realize there's even another example. Do you know the Think comic where you go a cruel joke to play on a black jogger? Yeah. And it's white person yells thief just to get the cops to assault the jogging black person. So I guess I have a very leading question for you first is what is the race of people who usually complain about these comics? Yeah, yeah. It's it's generally white people. But that stuff on the campus, it was black students, but when I met with them, and this happened in Arizona too, like the same complaints were like, it's not your comic that we have the issue with. It's the attitude on campus. Like well, your comic just sort of sort of ripped whatever scab that was on there. And so when I went to the one in Western Pennsylvania, there was somebody who called up on campus saying they were going to start shooting all black students on campus. And they felt like the security people did not care about it. And they didn't feel heard or anything like that. So every time I get invited out to speak on this, on my work, I always speak to the black students and hear them out and then voice their concerns. Because that's the thing is none of these campus people will listen to the students themselves, you know, and that's what you need to do. So, yeah, it's like, it's silly. And it's really interesting to, you know, I live 
right near UNC Chapel Hill. And every couple of months, there's just foolishness that goes on here, just racial foolishness. And the board, the UNC board is stacked with like the Republicans just put on all these super conservative people there. You know, they're the ones who felt like they couldn't give uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones tenure, you know, like, sure. Yeah, I know, really. This completely overqualified, award-winning journalist who went to your school, who would only bring prestige to your school. Sure, sure. She's not, yeah, she's not fit for tenure, you know, and then they give it to her after she's like ready to walk. And it's just silly well, and meanwhile, Georgetown University, where you had that professor, Ilya Shapiro, make a racist tweet about confirming Kentaji Brown-Jackson, confirming the first black woman to the Supreme Court, all he does is get a suspension, the investigation clears him of any wrongdoing, and he has the nerve to quit and get a um, glowing op-ed or whatever, like, where he gets to complain about being canceled. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's such silly foolishness and the older you get you just realize that adults are just children (laughs) they're just children they're just children with more confidence and they say stupid stupid things and do stupid stupid things and they're allowed to get away with it so yeah so i'd love to give you a chance to explain uh your slideshow or like what you seem to go around touring and what what you work in what are the contents of the slideshow what's it called and uh why might someone want to hire you to give your presentation oh well i mean there's there's several different ones um these days i'm doing more about like you know working on woke but also just the importance of sort of learning about history that makes us uncomfortable so i just did a a slideshow for a bunch of librarians which were it's great because librarians are they're on my side they're the, our last line of defense Good. you know so that was really cool but yeah i i just i learned early on that if i wanted people under 40 to read my comics i shouldn't be doing them in the newspaper <laughs> i should be posting them on the internet or bringing them to their campus and and i just found that doing these comic strip slideshows you know, I'm able to make people laugh and think at the same time. And I love doing it live in front of people and interacting with people. So it's been a wonderful experience. So campuses invite me in. And if there's something in particular that they want me to focus on, whether it's police brutality, whether it's CRT, Black history or or woke, I make sure that I cover that and just have a really great time presenting. It's fun. It's fun. And I've got a bunch of different ones that I have coming up. I do conventions like SBX. I'm a guest there. Uh, And then I'm doing a school in Springfield. And then I'm doing CXC, uh, Crossroads Columbus in Ohio. And it's a great experience. And I think being a presenter with visuals that are amusing really helps keep their attention. And it's something different for them so it's 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 been really cool i'm doing actually a church in october which i'm really excited about it's my second church and that's always interesting because it's an older crowd which i really like too yeah and i bought a book off you called they shoot black people don't they and that features a lot of the comics that you put in the slideshow yeah my latest book is called good on both sides you know it's taken from trump I I figured when I did that book, They Shoot Black People, Don't They? Like, I I didn't even have the collection. I was just doing a slideshow. And everyone kept on saying, do you have a collection of the strips that are in your slideshow? And I'm like, I should do that. So, yeah, They Shoot Black People, Don't They? I generally go with the first idea I have for a title. These days, though, I have people suggest titles. So my next collection, my K Chronicles collection, is going to be called Key for Madness. So I'm excited about that. And I mean, specifically, some of those strips you show, you have, like, there's some of them, they're the one panels, like the Oakland Writers sticker, which I'm trying to remember what the story you told behind that was. It shows, like, a pig and a police badge, but I, according to a handout you gave me, you said you used to leave those those logos you designed. You put them all around the East Bay. Yeah. Yeah. And you also detail your experience visiting prisons, which I think you even went to a juvenile detention hall, if I yeah. recall. Yeah, I was invited to San Francisco Juvie Hall. My my books 
they said were the most stolen from the, the prison library. So um, I felt honored to go in there. But it was horrifying. It was horrifying to see children in a prison and just to see so many kids that looked like me that, you know, some of them, I'm sure I did just as bad things as they did, just in a different situation, in a, a different community. And just, it's hard to see, it's hard to know, but it, it's an ugly reality about how many children we incarcerate in this country. It's crazy. I think in that comic, or a similar one about prisons, you put a phrase that I think it's seeped into my head. I think it should to anyone who listens to this. You say, let's take your average prisoner. Most people in jail are there for nonviolent drug offenses. Let's put them all together with violent offenders like rapists and murderers. Deny them any sort of books, medical care, or education, and turn the other way when they're assaulted. Then let them loose on the street once they've done their time. And I don't think people think about that enough. Yeah, that's it. You know, when anyone ever complains about, oh, I hear they're taking college classes in prison. Like, why wouldn't you want people being educated in prison? Why wouldn't you want people, like, doing positive things in prison? So when they're prepared to come out, they're not a complete mess, you know? 80% of the people in Rikers Island have not been convicted of anything. We're putting, we're creating, I mean, it, it, this has always been the case. It's, it's the prison industrial complex. It, it is a whole gigantic business. In fact, I have this, uh, I don't know if it's near me right now, it's not, but I have this like newsletter or something that they give out to prisoners. And it's this, it's like this cheap magazine that just exploits prisoners. It's got ads in there about being a pen pal with women you'll get pictures of women and you know it's like some dude who just like has all these pictures and he just writes oh i love you and sends sends them off but the exploitation yeah just the exploitation all across the board of all this stuff and then i remember seeing this footage of uh some louisiana sheriff who i guess some law was passed that he couldn't he could no longer use prison labor to wash his cars. And he was like in tears that he could no longer use free prison labor to keep his car clean. And it's just so screwed up. I mean, there are whole towns whose the livelihood of everyone in town is working for this prison that's in town, you know? I think that's a detail most people overlook. Most people kind of have it in their heads who are attuned to these. They think it's like, oh, it's just a private prison. It's a corporation. And that's true. But there's a lot more where it's just like, oh, no, we need to arrest people because the prison's just the local economy. And they have deals with the state saying you have to provide us with a certain amount of prisoners or you have to pay us. Like there were deals like that in place. So they have to create this stuff. And so that's why you have people just being railroaded in jail. I'd say there's probably 75% to 80% of people are cannon fodder for prison to just be caught up in the system, you know? And then the rest of the people, if you can avoid it, you can exist. But it's alarming and disturbing and crazy. And I feel fortunate to have avoided that. I hope that we can continue to avoid it. But it's crazy. You have to be aware of it to understand it, though, because you could easily get caught up in it. Easily. Oh, and with this whole, like, effort, I mean, the far-right politicians, the far-right crowd in San Francisco, they succeeded in booting out Chesa Bodine for DA. I don't know if they'll be later proved unsuccessful in an actual election but like you get these types who think like oh if you're not arresting people you're soft on crime and that's probably because they don't think about what you're bringing to light right now yeah what you bring to light in your cartoons yeah and I, you know i don't know if you you've seen my my black mugshot project i wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about it yeah like one of the things that just drives me crazy are all these you know you go on google news and all you see are black mugshots all the time and so i was like you know what i'm gonna 
I'm going to buy the URL for blackmugshots.com and I'm going to post a picture of me with my mug, my coffee mug, and I'm going to label it Black Mug Shots and see if I can get a bunch of different people to do it and, and get publicity behind it. And I just want to see if I could crack the Google algorithm and get onto the Google image search for Black Mug Shots. It took me about a month and a half. It took me a month and a half getting publicity in Boston.com, Washington Post being syndicated to a bunch of different newspapers and just people doing it. I had Lamorne do a mugshot. I had like all these different people do mugshots for me. But what happened after that is the NC Justice Institute uh, reached out to me and they said, you know, we have this bill that's being considered now to it's like the mugshot. I forget what it's called. But it's it's this bill that would make it illegal for places to post someone's mugshot. If, if you had your thing expunged, the problem is in America, if you have a mugshot, like people can just take it and put it up and leave it up. In a lot of countries, that's illegal. If you have not been convicted or any, of anything or you have done your time, then you can't have that mugshot up there. And so this law would make it illegal to post your mugshot because literally there are companies that will contact you and say give us five hundred dollars we'll get rid of your mugshot off the internet like there are real companies and the nc justice institute said they're like these shell companies you can never find who the owners are if you go into some of these smaller towns in north carolina there there are mugshot newspapers where it's just there's nothing else except people's mugshots and there were news sites that just have mugshot pages. I visited this one cop website. They're all in their riot gear with guns, and they just post mugshots. And it's just like once your mugshot is on the internet, you have a harder time getting jobs, getting places to live, getting credit, like all that stuff because people assume you're guilty of something. And it's way worse for people of color. So yeah, it's something that is very important to me. And uh, I'm doing just doing a small part, just doing my small part to try to get people aware of that and to change the laws. In Utah, because it's Utah, and it happened to this white man <laughs> where his mugshot got put on for something and like it destroyed everything. He They passed a law to to outlaw mugshots for that and that's what needs to happen across the country yeah and i'm really glad you're bringing attention to that issue and i recommend to all listeners and i'll put a link in the show notes that you can see similar topics like all explored in your booklet they shoot black people don't they and uh, i mean as well as other related think comics you post online I did actually want to ask you a non-serious question, but nonetheless, something I wondered as I looked through one of your strips. You show yourself being mad at Pearls Before Swine creator Stephen Pastis. You make a comic about him sending emails to you impersonating the creator of Stone Soup, Jen Elliott. And I wondered what that was all about, <laughs> because Bay Area person, I know Stephen Pastis' work very well. You know, I know he he likes to poke fun at different cartoonist so i thought it would be fun to poke fun at him and yeah i stayed at jan elliott's house once and she was really nice so i just thought it would be interesting to mix that up and you know that was my foray into teasing uh, other people in the industry and i like drawing in other people's style too um i recently did one of my favorite strips i did recently was a parody of uh the far side it was the famous strip, the Midvale School for the Gifted, where the kid is, is, it says pull, but he's trying to push. So I, I basically changed the Midvale School for the oh, Gifted. Oh, I did see that one. Yeah, yeah, and changed it to Evaldi, the Evaldi School, and made it a cop trying to push the door in when it says pull. So that was an effective strip, let's just say that. <laughs> well, that's good. I I'm glad to know about i mean because we all have those influences and good to know you have nothing against pearls before swine and again want to thank you because here i am talking to you won the ink pot award at san diego comic-con you've won an naacp history maker award you have all your works you got your tv show made and i just kind of as we wrap up i wanted to give you an opportunity for if there's anything else you'd like to plug before we go 
<laughs> no, you know, just the great thing about streaming is the show does not disappear. It's it's up online. So for folks who have Hulu, go check out Woke. Check out my work, gatechronicles.com and on my Patreon page. And yeah, my new book, Good on Both Sides, is out. And yeah, cartooning never ends. We continue to create and it's it's fun. And keep an eye out for my next my next thing. I'll be pitching my next show, hopefully in the next month or two. So we'll see. We can't wait and you're welcome back here anytime. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another installment of Drawing Controversy. Drawing Controversy is a podcast created, edited, produced, and written by me, Jordan LHH. Theme music is by Mikhail Elish. Cover artwork is by Keshav. Follow at Drawing Controversy on Instagram, at Drawing Contrav on Twitter, and we'll see you in two weeks.